Uh, I'm Barry Lyons. Um, I'm, my background is in um, healthcare. Um, I've been a clinician for a long time um, now, and I uh, teach bioethics in the School of Medicine here. So you may take anything that I say as, as having some form of, of cultural baggage and, and bias attached to it. Um, I'm not going to provide a theoretical account of blame or shame or accountability. Um, rather, particularly with regards to shame, I'm going to try and talk about its, its inherent complexity and, and, and essential duality of purpose um, through a series of narratives. Uh, so basically, I'm going to stand here and tell a bunch of stories. Um, the whole role of shame is a, is a matter of, of, of significant debate. According to some versions of um, shame, particularly those in the Aristotelian tradition, uh, shame is an emotion that points towards virtue. Uh, it signals our mistakes, enables us to learn from them, and makes us effectively better people. To make a mistake and not to learn from it is indicative of a wicked um, of having a wicked character, so to speak. More modern accounts, particularly those in the psychological uh, literature, sort of uh, identify shame as what's called an ugly emotion. They say in the 21st century it has no evolutionary purpose. Why have we not ditched it like our appendix and our tonsils? Um, that it's, it, it promotes maladaptive behavior, the run, running away and hide and the, the move from social engagement. And what I want to suggest in, in, in this talk is that both accounts are essentially true depending on context uh, and, and individuals. I have no answers at the end of this, um, but more to try and give an indication of, 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 of the sort of complexity of, of, of the subject. So what we've talked uh, about a lot this morning is about patients and people and individuals who are unhappy with themselves or have some disease process. Um, and as Luna uh, alluded, lots of people go in to see their doctor and feel shamed during that process. And much of the theorizing about this relates to the objectification of the individual, that, that doctors in some way regard patients as objects. They regard them as their disease entity, you know, the, the old story of the kidney in bed 10 as opposed to Mrs. whatever who's married to whatever and has whatever illness and this sort of thing. Um, and that um, if we just moved more towards a subject-subject interaction, uh, this would affect our moral performance uh, and lessen objectification and lessen distance between the doctor and the patient and so everything would be much better. But what I want to sort of suggest is that within this subject-subject interaction, there are actually two subjects. And if the second subject, i.e. the patient, can be shamed in some sense in these encounters, why cannot the first subject, the doctor? And, and one of the things that's most under-theorized and most under-discussed uh, in medicine is the role of emotion in medical practice and how doctors are affected by various things that they see, various things that they do, and various ways that they are regulated. One of the reasons why this is, um, why the subject-object uh, sort of kind of thing persists, 
uh, and why none of the sort of emotional aspects of, of medical practice are really discussed at any great length compared to many other sort of theoretical subjects is because of the problem of professional enculturation, what is called the hidden curriculum in medical education. And so I can stand there and teach professionalism until it's coming out my ears to medical students. I can talk about ethics. I can talk about how they might wish to conduct themselves. But when they go into hospitals, they are subject to a hidden curriculum, which is that they are, are much, much more affected by how they see people behave than anything that I can ever tell them. And that's what reinforces uh, their behaviour and also reinforces this notion that you know, doctors must have a distance from their patients. They shouldn't become emotionally entangled. That emotion within a doctor is something negative that prohibits them from correctly doing their job. And so emotional aspects of provision are something that tends to be relegated uh, from this course. So, series of narratives. So this is my hospital where I work. You can see it's a fine example of hospital architecture, a thing of beauty. And this is the story of a nurse that I worked with. And this is taken from the front page of the Irish Times. So it's about a baby who had a congenital heart defect, who had had an operation, who was in the intensive care unit. And a nurse was looking after him one night. And she miscalculated the dose of a drug that she's giving by infusion. And these um, 10 times the dose errors happen in medicine, because when you're dealing with micrograms and milligrams, it's very easy for people to make a mistake. Anyway, she recognized after a number of hours what she had done. She was from the Philippines. Her husband and her four children were in the Philippines. She was the wage earner. She was terrified. She was terrified she would lose her job. She was terrified that she would not be able to get another job because of this. She was terrified she would no longer be able to provide for her family. So she decided to hide it. She covered it up. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to cover up because the next nurse who came on duty looked at what was supposed to be given, looked at what was left in the syringe. There's obviously a discrepancy between the two and said, what's happening here, at which case she, the nurse in question, broke down, confessed everything. She was suspended. She was made to a variety of courses. And she was sent, when she came back, to work in a low-stress situation in the outpatient department. Anybody who knows anything about nursing knows that nobody moves from the intensive care unit to outpatients. Everybody knows that you've been sent there. So this is inadvertent public shaming. She was also referred um, to on board Alternish, which was our regulatory sort of body at the time, which had changed names in the middle of her case uh, to be dealt with. And so what she said during this was that she was so ashamed of what she had done. I'm going to take, within, within medical dialogue, Terms are used interchangeably. Guilt, shame, ashamed, shameful, embarrassment, humiliation, mortification. All these terms are used almost interchangeably within the discourse. And while there's philosophical and psychological discourse that says these things aren't actually the same, in common language, people use them interchangeably. And so I'll, I'll take these things uncritically. 
So what was she ashamed of? Well, we don't actually know what she's ashamed of. Was she ashamed of having made the error in the first place? Was she ashamed of having covered it up? Was she ashamed because she'd been caught? Can you be ashamed if you haven't been exposed in public? But she was terribly ashamed. In fact, she was so ashamed that she offered to resign twice. And her offer of resignation was rejected by the hospital. In the end, she did resign. And she left the hospital in 2013. And when asked, why did you leave? She said, I didn't want to go, but it was a form of self-punishment for what I had done. So, we have shame, we have public exposure, and we have consequences, whether they are direct or otherwise. The second narrative comes from a neurosurgeon called Henry Marsh. And Henry Marsh published a book last year, last year, well, Do No Harm, inventive title, uh, stories of life, death, and brain surgery. Now, if you look on Amazon, Henry Marsh's book has something like 655 star reviews. It has been universally acclaimed. Fortunately, I've spent 25 years working in close proximity with surgeons, and I possibly feel slightly different about the book <laughs> than other people might. And I am, I am more skeptical, let's say, about some of the way the material is presented. Nonetheless, within this book, um, Henry Marsh talks a little bit about shame. And so he recounts a case, and this is a bit bizarre, I've worked in a lot of operating theatres in my life, but within this particular institution, within the operating theatre, there was a room specially for the neurosurgeons. And within that room, there were two red leather couches. And Henry Marsh, in between cases, used to lie on one of the couches and reflect upon the world. And one day, two other surgeons, who weren't neurosurgeons, invaded his space. He was most put out and had an argument with them. And they said, surely we were told we could share all these spaces. This is for neurosurgeons only. They left unhappily. He then went and did an operation. As a consequence of that fairly trivial conflict, we would have to think, he said, I know I was not in the right state of mind to carry out such dangerous and delicate surgery. And when I saw the patient on the ward round the days, days afterwards, I saw his paralyzed face. Paralyzed as a consequence of complication of the operation. Paralyzed and disfigured, I felt a deep sense of shame. So what, what's that shame from? Is it the shame that he allowed some trivial argument impair his surgical performance? Is that an error? Is he simply ashamed because the outcome isn't as good as could have been expected? Or is he ashamed because that outcome is actually visible to everybody else on the ward as an indication of his failure? He doesn't elaborate on this. But later on, he talks a little bit more about shame about a different patient. So doctors make mistakes, uh, and the consequences can be catastrophic for patients. Most surgeons, except for a few, or possibly more than a few, <laughs> feel a deep sense of shame 
when their patients suffer or die as a result of their efforts. Again, is this outcome sort of shame. A sense of shame which is made all the worse if litigation follows. So not only is there shame from outcome, there is shame from blame and shame from the potential of public exposure. The third narrative comes from Daniel Offrey. And Daniel Offrey is an American physician who's one of the few people to write about emotion in medicine and its impact upon medical practice. And she recounts a story of when she was a resident. And so there's a hierarchy in American medicine. So you've got students, you've got interns, you've got residents, you've got fellows, you've got staff. So she's working one night, and one of the patients she's looking after has diabetes, and his blood sugar is way, way, way too high. So he's got what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, which induces coma. And she treats him, and she treats him really well, and his blood sugar comes back to normal. And the nurse then says, what do you want to do now? And so this is the second stage of treatment, and so she instigates a form of treatment. Unfortunately, she doesn't get it right. And the man's blood sugar shoots back up again. And she's doing this with the intern, and she's teaching the intern, and the two of them are together. And then the fellow is called because the blood sugar has gone back up again. And the fellow indicates the mistake that has been made. But this is something that shouldn't have happened because this is so obvious that anybody with half a brain should have been able to manage this properly. And so she stands there in the middle of the ward, surrounded by people with the intent, and she says, what were you thinking? And then there's absolute silence. And Danielle Offrey says, I couldn't even muster a whisper. I felt a gulf widen around me as though I'd lost control of my bladder. I was standing in a growing puddle of mortification. Now there are consequences from this. The first was that she felt particularly demeaned. She felt shattered, was the term. And this is, she published uh, this chapter in a, a periodical called Health Affairs. And this was the artwork that came with it. So this collapsed figure, crumbling, shattered, the icon of medicine, the stethoscope, away from her, the bed far removed in the corner. She said, I couldn't even raise my eyes towards my intern, all I wanted to do was crawl under a rock and weep. Now, the upside of this is that she never ever again failed to treat somebody with diabetic ketoacidosis properly. Not only that, she made sure that any medical student or intern or resident that passed through her hands also knew how to treat diabetic ketoacidosis perfectly. So I guess you could say there was a benefit to it, but what doing that perfectly displaced in terms of other skills that she may have had or may have thought, of course, is, is, is an unknowable. But the shame didn't go away. So 15 years later, she's pregnant and she's in the obstetric outpatients and who turns up beside her but the fellow from that night in the same clinic also heavily pregnant, and so the two of them are sitting beside her. And she could feel the shame from that night returning. I doubt if she even remembered that incident, but I couldn't keep down the emotions of that long ago error. 
For me, the shame of the er my error and the resultant loss of self-esteem would not release their grip on my soul. So she talks about the shame as lingering. So that the shame in, in some of these instances persists and is brought up by particular triggers. The final narrative um, is one told to me by a medical student. Actually, it's a composite because what's told to me by medical students remains confidential. And unfortunately, I have enough of these stories that I can actually add them together. Um, and so the story goes about a woman who's lying in a bed, hospital bed, who's ill. And she's presented with a variety of symptoms. And she's lying, lying in the bed. And a surgeon, uh, sorry, Captain, but it was a surgeon, I apologize, um, brought a group of medical students around the bed to teach with the permission of the woman in the bed. And so they went through the uh, symptoms and how to examine and how to elicit various parts of the history and, um, and what the differential diagnosis might be, what possibly might this poem be afflicted with. And so, uh, so they went through all that and sort of at the end of it, the surgeon said, of course, this woman has cancer. The woman in the bed started crying. She didn't know what her diagnosis was. She hadn't been told she had cancer. And so the medical student, or the medical student in particular, was looking at this woman crying, then found out that the woman didn't know what her diagnosis was, and this was the way that she had found out. Afterwards, the surgeon was unrepentant. The surgeon, she, she said, well, sure, she'd have to find out sometime anyway. So the medical student felt a deep sense of shame. And this sort of sense of shame is what we call vicarious shame, um, which isn't a very sort of romantic title and is not something that we use uh, particularly in the English language, but there are other languages that have this sense. Anybody here speak Spanish? No, I was hoping I'd have somebody who speaks Spanish tell me if this is true or not. But apparently within Spanish, there's this term vergüenza ajena, which apparently translates and is used within common parlance as literally feeling the shame of another. And medical students often talk about feeling the shame of patients when they have been exposed, either physically exposed or emotionally exposed within the clinical encounter. And the response to vicarious shame, and, and I've experienced it, uh, when I was a medical student, uh, is usually the runaway. And so this medical student left the hospital and didn't return to the hospital for the rest of that rotation. She was so, felt so bad about what had gone on. She felt so terrible for the woman. Uh, medical students are subject to other aspects of shame and one of it regards teaching and the use of shame and humiliation as a sort of pedagogical sort of exercise. And so this year there was a paper published about ENT surgeons or ear, nose and throat surgeons um, whereby 50, over 50% of medical students uh, who attended ENT theatre had been humiliated as a, a mechanism to teach them. Which may or may not be a good thing to do, but what was quite interesting about the uh, 
about the study was that most of those medical students who felt shamed um, during the teaching exercise felt that shaming was actually a good way to teach. And so you were likely to get perpetuation of this. And this lack of acknowledgement of shame as something that may be damaging may also influence how doctors, when they graduate, may interact with their patients. Right. So if you sort of try to categorize them, the triggers sort of for shame in doctors come about because of their inadequacy with regard to treatment or with regard to knowledge. And particularly with regard to knowledge, um, that is, I suppose, reinforced as being shameful because one of the worst things you can do whenever you attend a medical tutorial is to say, I don't know. Uh, I don't know is not an acceptable answer, even though you may not know. And that becomes reinforced so that when you actually practice, not knowing becomes a bad thing. And this and the Institute of Medicine have published uh, something about errors in diagnosis this year and this drive within people because not knowing is shameful, not being able to diagnose is shameful, that this encourages people to leap to diagnosis, many of which are actually wrong. So there's shame because of error, there's outcome shame, there's being held to be accountable, there's being shamed in public, and there's this notion of moral shame, which may relate to the medical student and the vicarious shame, or it may relate to what Sheila was talking about this morning, which I hadn't really included in my thoughts on it, which is about the shame of doing something that's regarded as unclean in some way. Okay, so Lazar said, and Lazar is the, I suppose, medical god of, of, of shame, that sh for the professional to experience shame is healthy. It means they were social beings and we care what other people think about us. Within psychology, and I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to critique this one way or another, but we can see that within moral failure we have two pathways. They suggest an internal and an external pathway, that external condemnation universally leads to self-defense, to the hide and avoid uh, technique. That, that our internal recognition of our deficits results in shame, which can translate into this defensive mechanism, or can result in self-improvement. Now obviously if shaming or doctors feeling ashamed leads to improvement and social improvement and improvement with their relations with patients, then this is a good thing. But if it leads to hide and avoid creating an increased distance between the doctor and the patient, then this obviously is a bad thing. So herein lies the complexity. When is it good and when is it not so good? Are there times when we can avoid it, when it would result in harmful encounters, or times when we may use it more effectively? So just a small little bit at the end about error and outcome shame. So there is in fact a linear relationship between how bad the error is and the intensity of the emotional outcome, the depth of shame, experienced by the professional. If it's not, if the individual is not supported within the institution where they work, then this emotional burden actually gets worse. And the kind of emotions that they feel, obviously, is self-doubt. 
So within this paper by Newman, it's quite interesting when we talk about language, um, there's one sort of narrative by, by a, a general practitioner who said, um, I was so embarrassed. I'm such an idiot. How could I have done that? He said, and not only that, it was public. I was humiliated. I felt mortified. And so we used almost every word possible within, within a single narrative. And so this sense of shame happens in over 50% um, related to error. When people have a complaint made about them, this notion of being shamed happens in over 30% of practitioners, which is neither here nor there. But the people that we really are interested in are those that in other, I suppose, contexts might be called shame-prone. And these are people who suffer long-term shame. And this is a particularly uh, difficult situation because their emotional response uh, to the clinical encounter is negative. So they engage in the hide and avoid. They feel angry with patients. They demonstrate that hostility. They don't deal with patients well. <coughs> and so this translation from being made to account for one's actions into some long-term shame syndrome results in very negative encounters and obviously is very unsatisfactory for patients. Okay, what are we doing, Tom? We're way over. Okay, well this was, I suppose, one of the things that set me off thinking about shame in the first place before I read anything. And this is about what I suppose is regulatory shame which is where people are held to account by regulatory bodies in a very public forum. And within this state, it happened with the Medical Practitioners Act of 2007, whereby inquiries by the Medical Council into the conduct of doctors were no longer to be held in private, but were to be held in public. And what happens during those is that when the case is set to be heard, their story appears in the newspaper. Doctor to be held to account for whatever it is that the doctor is alleged to have done or not done. The case then doesn't go to a hearing for another 18 months. So there is no defense, and so there is reputational harm within that time, regardless of guilt or innocence. And this is a particular, particular story from the NPS casebook of a doctor, a GP, who was exposed on the front pages of the British newspapers. Um, and it's certainly something that we don't teach in medical school, how to handle the media when you've had an error. Um, never thought about being on the front page of a national newspaper. And the stories are universally angled in a particular way that assumes guilt rather than innocence. In the end, he was absolutely, although exonerated by the medical council, he was utterly devastated uh, by his experiences. OK. <laughs> so, just one final thing, which is about the use of public shaming to encourage doctors to actually perform. The Medical Practitioners Act is a form of public shaming, although it probably wasn't intended to be so. 
This is from the UK and the Right Honourable Jeremy Hunt, beloved by all of those who work in the NHS, um, suggested that, that GPs who weren't very good at diagnosing cancer should be named and shamed on some form of public well, uh, website. And so the commentary on this is that, uh, so the Murray then engaged in a bit of philosophy. And so the analysis of the mirror went like this. Patients have a right to know whether the doctors in whom they are putting their trust are worthy of that trust. If bad decisions are causing not costing lives, then doctors must be made to take responsibility for that. Maybe if they were at risk of being named and shamed, they would take more care. There's obviously lots of leaps uh, within this particular piece of analysis. Um, but this notion that if you threaten people with shame, they will automatically behave better. As we know from many other uh, experiences with shame, it doesn't actually work. Okay, so I'll skip on to the end. So what I've tried to do is to sort of indicate the sort of multitudinous ways that shame can actually impact upon medical practice. That it can impact upon doctors' emotions, but that, that is not just, we might say, well, why should we care about doctors? Which is a fair point. Uh, why should society care uh, whether doctors feel shame or embarrassment or guilt or any of those kind of things? If for no other reason uh, they should care because it probably impacts upon the doctor-patient encounter and it impacts upon the clinical care that's likely to be given. And I find it surprising that there is very little um, examination of, of this sort of emotional content to the uh, to the medical encounter. And that's me. So if anybody's got any questions, I'd like to take them.